you to please the Word of God to Acts chapter 13. We return this morning to our study of the book of Acts. We're in chapter 13. Now, the last time in our study, we looked at verses 1 through 12, where we have the calling and sending of the first Christian missionaries. They were Barnabas and Saul. In verse 2, Luke tells us that as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. And we're told in verse 9 that Saul is also called Paul. And that's the name of which we are the most familiar and by which he will be called from this point on in the book of Acts. So I won't be going back and forth saying, Paul, no, I mean Saul. Saul, no, I mean Paul. Now it's just Paul. And that's good for me. And it'll probably be better for you. But he emerges also as the leader and the chief spokesman for the band of missionaries. He was, it seems, Barnabas's assistant. And that would be rightly so. Barnabas was a Christian long before Saul became converted. And Barnabas is the one that helped Saul and introduced him to the church and so forth and took him to Tarsus. And uh, Barnabas was the leader. But now Paul is the leader and the chief spokesman. The first stop in their missionary journey was the island of Cyprus in the Mediterranean, which, again, we looked at a couple of weeks ago. Now, this morning we come to verses 13 through 49, which contain these three things that we'll look at. Now, we'll not be able to get to all of them. Uh, I don't believe we'll be able to get to all of them this morning. But we have, first of all, uh, in verses 13 through 15, an invitation to preach. Secondly, we have in verses 16 through 41, the message delivered. And then in verses 42 through 52, we have a response to that message. And so uh, I'm not going to read through the whole passage uh, this morning. I've listened to a number of sermons this week who have done that. And somewhere in the middle, I quit listening. <laughs> uh, it's just hard to focus that, uh, that long of a passage to do it. So I'm going to try to just read portions of it as we move through the passage. Now, we will begin by reading verses 13 through 15. That's a short uh, section. So let's uh, please follow me as I read beginning in verse 13. Now, when Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, they came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. But they, when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch in Pisidia. And went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. And after reading, uh, after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent to them saying, men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on or speak up. <laughs> so uh, here we have this invitation to preach. <clears throat> now, from Cyprus, Luke tells us in verse 13 that they sailed to Perga in Pamphylia, which is modern-day Turkey. 
In that day, it was the region of southern Galatia. Now, this is significant because Paul would later write the epistle of Galatians to the churches that would be established in this area. Now, we're not told of any particular ministry they had in Perga. Uh, The only thing we're told is that John Mark departed from them at this point and returned to Jerusalem. There's been much speculation why he left them, but we simply don't know. Uh, At this juncture, Luke simply says, John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. Now, later, he indicates, Luke indicates, that it was not on good terms, at least not with the Apostle Paul. Uh, But we'll look at that when we get to it. But I want us to look at where they stopped here in the city, the, the Greek city of Antioch. That's their next stop. It's a large city, mostly Greek, but there was a, a significant number of Jews. It's in the Roman province of Pisidia. Now, to get there, uh, they would have to travel 100 miles northward over the Taurus Mountains, or Tarsus Mountains, I mean, the Tarsus Mountains, which would be a difficult journey. And there's some who believe that it was here that Paul fell very ill. You imagine traveling in that way, in that terrain, and all with illness of any kind. But it was a difficult journey. And when they came into the city, they found the local synagogue. This would become Paul's general practice. When he would come into a city, he would find the synagogue. Uh, and on the Sabbath day, it says they entered the synagogue and they sat down. And after the customary reading of a portion of the law and the, and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue invited them to preach, saying, men and brethren, again, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. Now, we don't know why exactly they were asked uh, or why they thought these men could be trusted. If I had a visitor I'd never met before walk in the church, I'm not going to ask him to preach. <laughs> I'm not going to ask him to stand up and say anything. I don't know him. How can you trust him? But perhaps uh, there was a prior introduction or there was a conversation or someone knew who they were. Or maybe it was the way Paul was dressed in some kind of uh, rabbinical attire. Uh, and so they they asked him to preach. If you have any a word of exhortation. Uh, I, I love the way they were asked. If you have any word or a, a word of exhortation for the people. I heard someone say that it's like asking a grandparent if they have any pictures of their grandchildren. <laughs> well, of course they had something to say. Uh, that's why they were there. This is this was the work that God had called them to do. Separate from me Saul and Barnabas. Uh, and to the work that I've called them to do. This is why they traveled all that way and sailed the sea and, and crossed the mountains. They were there to preach the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. It reminded me again of that passage that Paul quoted in, in Romans chapter 10, Isaiah 57 two. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who proclaims peace, who brings glad tidings of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. These 
men, weary men, coming from such a distance, sitting down in their midst, and they have something to say. That they were there to preach it. They were there to preach the Word of God with all their hearts. And they were there to preach it to the Jew first, and then also to the Gentiles. So we have this invitation to preach. And now we have the message delivered. Now, this is Paul's first recorded sermon, beginning in verse 16, going through verse 41. It's certainly not the first sermon he ever preached, but it's the first of which we have a record. The Holy Spirit inspired Luke to give a record of this sermon. Now, it's not identical, but it sounds very similar to Peter's message on the day of Pentecost and also to Stephen's message before his martyrdom. And remember, Paul was there when Stephen preached that message. He heard it. And then he gave his hearty approval to stoning Stephen for saying it. Now he's preaching the same message he once tried to destroy. That's an amazing thing. Now, uh, I'll, I'll read a portion of this this sermon, but uh, just notice, first of all, though, verse 16, it says, Then Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. And then the sermon follows. Now, uh, that, it's amazing. If you, if you uh, are asked to speak to a group of people, there's two things you need to know. You need to know your audience. And you need to know uh, what you're going to say. You need to know who you're talking to and what you wanted to tell them. Well, Paul knew exactly what he wanted to say because he knew exactly what they needed to hear. He knew his audience. He knew who they were. He knew where they were coming from. Now, in a Jewish synagogue, you're going to find Israelites. And so he addresses Israel. He says, uh, uh, men of Israel. But then he adds, and you who fear God, the God fears. We've run into them already in the book of Acts. But they were Gentiles who had left their polytheism and false worship of false gods. Uh, and they had come to believe in the one true living God, Jehovah. And so they were called God fears. Now, they had not adopted all of the customs of the Jews. They didn't get circumcised. They didn't observe certain rites and rituals and so forth, but they did have an affinity and, a, and an understanding of and, a, and a, a certain fear of the one true and living God. So they're called the God-fearers. But predominantly, it would have been a Jewish audience. And he knew who they were and he knew where they were coming from because he came from the same place. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He had the same mindset previously. <clears throat> from the same terrible, mistaken mindset, I would add. You see, before his conversion to Christ, he had spent his entire life doing the very same thing they were doing. And what were they doing? Well, they were going about seeking to establish their own righteousness by keeping God's law. He now knew that by the works of the law, no flesh would be justified in his sight. But they were his people, fellow Israelites, his brethren according to the flesh. He loved them. 
his heart's desire and prayer for Israel was that God would save them. That is to be saved and be made right with God. The only only way they could be made right with God was to hear the gospel and to believe it. They thought they were right with God. And you might think, well, of course they're right with God. They're religious people. They're going to the synagogue. They're worshiping. They're doing these things. They're reading the Word of God. They're, they're doing all of these things. Why do they need to be made right with God? Don't, why don't you go and find these Gentiles, these pagans, these heathens? They need God, not the Jews. But that was the very mistaken mindset they had. They thought because they were Jews, because they were descendants of of Abraham, because they had the law and the prophets and they had the worship of God and they had all the trappings, that they were all right with God. But they weren't. They were as guilty and condemned as their pagan friends. And so Paul knew that. He knew his audience. And the only way they could be saved would be to hear the message that he had to bring the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. John Stott summarizes the theme of his message very well. And it's this, how the God of the people of Israel has brought to Israel the Savior as he promised. God promised them he would bring a Savior and he actually did what he said he was going to do. What God has promised throughout the Scriptures has now been fulfilled in sending Jesus Christ into the world. We just sang, This is He whom heaven-taught singers sang of old with one accord, whom the Scriptures of the prophets promised in their faithful word. Now He shines the long-expected. Let creation praise its Lord. So, uh, let's begin reading in verse 17. And we'll read down through verse 25. Let's back up to 16. Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. This is important. You ought to listen too. Uh, The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he brought them out out of it. Now for a time of about 40 years, he put up with their ways in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land to them by allotment. After that, he gave them judges for about 450 years until Samuel the prophet. And afterward, they asked for a king. So God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, For 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up for them King David as king, to whom he also, uh, to whom he also gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. From this man's seed, that is from David's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a Savior, Jesus. Now, we'll stop right there. That's as far as we need to go right now. But uh, there's three things I want to point out about this sermon of Paul. Uh, First of all, it was thoroughly biblical, you'd have to say. (laughs) 
he's uh, he's rehearsing to them the whole uh, redemptive story of Israel. It's thoroughly biblical. Paul wasn't there to give them his own thoughts or ideas, his own perspective on life or religion. He's not even there to give them his testimony or, or talk about himself and what God has done in his life. He's there to do to them what he later charged Timothy, and that was this, to preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season to reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and patience. He wants them to know that his message is rooted and grounded in the sacred scriptures. This is not his own idea. It's not just something they came up with. And you remember earlier when the disciples were arrested and they came to the conclusion, well, if it's really of God, it'll last. If it's not of God, it's just someone coming along saying there's some great person and so forth. It'll die and everyone will uh, disperse and it'll be done with. No, he wants them to know that this message that he's bringing is thoroughly grounded and rooted in the sacred scripture. So it's thoroughly biblical. Secondly, it is God-centered. It's all about what God has done. Notice how often uh, that God is the subject of the verbs and the actions. In verse 17, it says, The God of this people Israel chose our fathers. That's the first thing. He chose our fathers. He exalted the people when they dwelt in the strangers in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he brought them out of it. It's all referring to what God has done. And then uh, about 40 years, he put up with their ways. God did this. He put up with their ways in the wilderness. Verse 19, and he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan. He drove them out. He distributed the land. Verse 20, he gave them judges. Verse 21, he gave them Saul. When they asked for a king, he gave them Saul. And then in verse 22, he removed Saul. He gave them Saul. He removed Saul. He raised up for them David as king. That was God's doing. They, they weren't uh, taking a poll or taking votes. This was God's work. He was doing all of this. And he gave testimony. He said, I found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. Verse 23 and it was from this man's seed, God raised up for Israel a Savior, Jesus. So this is what God has done. He goes on in the sermon, as we'll see, it's God doing this, God doing this. Now, this teaches us the great fact that not only is God in charge of everything, but that salvation from beginning to end is of the Lord. God is the one who takes the initiative. God planned and carried out His plan. God made promises and fulfilled those promises. Hundreds of years would go by, and yet God was faithful and He kept His promises. As far as man's actions here, almost everything we see in this, in this message that He brings has to do with man's complete failure and sin. They asked for a king. They wanted to be like the other nations and so forth. They, they were uh, not doing this out of the goodness of their heart. They were doing this out of the sinfulness of their heart. They were complaining in the wilderness and God had to put up with them. It's their sin. 
And it has been said that salvation is all of God and all of grace and that the only thing we contribute to it is the sin from which we need to be saved. And that's true of them and it's true of us. But then the third thing, it's not only biblical, it is not only God-centered, it is Christ-centered. Now, we read a lot about the history of Israel, but it was all heading to this one grand point. Uh, It may seem at first that Paul was simply giving them a summary of the history of Israel, and he was doing that, but he shows very clearly that their history was actually going somewhere. It was heading towards and leading up to its grand fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we find that in verse 23. This man's seed, David's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a Savior, Jesus. And now the rest of his sermon is all about Christ. It's God-centered. And what he spoke of about the Old Testament was only leading him up to speak to them about Christ. It's been said that the Old Testament Scriptures says this, someone is coming. And the New Testament says, someone has come. And that's how I want us to look at this sermon. Uh, First of all, someone is coming. And giving this recap of Israel's history, he's showing how the Old Testament prepared the way for the Lord's coming. He begins with the fact that God chose their fathers in verse 16. He's referring here, um, uh, I'm sorry, verse 17. He's showing here <clears throat> that, uh, that God chose the patriarchs, and that's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They were the fathers. Scriptures speak of our fathers, speaking of them primarily and usually speaking of that. You see, it was these three men that God established his covenant with. In his sovereign grace, God chose Abraham. He was living among the pagans. He was a pagan himself. And he told him to get up and and leave your family and go to a land that I will tell you. But he chose Abraham and he swore to him that he would make of him a great nation and that in his seed, all the families of the earth would be blessed. This one man, this one man who didn't even have a child yet, this one man who was advanced in age and his wife was advanced in age and God promised that he would give him a descendant, but not only one descendant, but he he told him that uh, that know that his descendants would be like the the sand of the sea in number or the stars in the sky in number. Out of this one man, God promised to do this. He swore that he would make him a great nation. He also told him that knowing certainly your descendants will be strangers in a land that's not theirs and will serve them. He was referring to Egypt that they would be taken into Egypt. And you, we don't need to go into all of that, but they, they wound up in Egypt, the children of Israel. And then they began to multiply. And it says there in verse uh, 17 uh, that He exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. 
Now, exalted them, well, they were servants, they were slaves, and they were punished and they suffered, but they kept multiplying. They kept multiplying, so much so that the Egyptians were concerned, they'll become more than us. But God was blessing them, God was multiplying them, and then with an uplifted arm, He brought them out of Egypt. He delivered them from their bondage in Egypt, and this would be a picture or a type of his greater deliverance from the servitude of sin and of Satan. And then it tells us that for 40 years, he led them through the wilderness and the way to the promised land. He put up with their ways in spite of their unbelief, in spite of their murmuring and complaining. God was patient and God was kind and God provided for them. And then when they came to the land of Egypt or the land of Canaan, he drove out the nations of the land and he distributed the land to the twelve tribes of Israel. Verse 20 tells us that he gave them judges for about 450 years until Samuel the prophet. And then afterward, they asked for a king. That was not a good thing. As I said, they wanted to be like the other nations. They wanted to have a king whom they could see rather than follow a God whom they could not see. But it was not a good thing, but God gave them this king. And then God removed him as king. He was a wicked king, an awful king. And God removed him and took, took his kingdom from him and gave it to another. And that other was David. God chose David. God chose David to be the king of Israel. And from this man's seed, verse 23, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a Savior. And you see, that's, this is where Paul was all going with this. Uh, this is where all of Israel's history and all of God's promises were heading. God promised that one of David's descendants would sit upon his throne forever. And he was referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. So his message here is that someone is coming. God is going to bring this about. This doesn't happen by chance. It's not just some fascinating young man was born with a lot of talent. No, this was God's working. God sent forth his son. He says later, I believe it's in Galatians, he says, at the right time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman born under the law, that He might redeem those who were in bondage all of their lives. Someone is coming. And then He goes on to speak of someone has come. God raised up for Israel a Savior, Jesus. And so we read in verse 24, after John had first preached, speaking of John the Baptist, before His coming, the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finished, uh, was finishing his course, he said, who do you think I am? I am not he. I'm not the one you've been waiting for and looking for. I'm not the Messiah. He was simply a finger pointing toward the Messiah. He was God's forerunner. He was there to prepare the way for the Lord. And so... John says, one is coming after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to loose. He was like a voice crying in the wilderness, but crying nonetheless. 
He was making straight the paths of the Lord. He was preparing the way for the Messiah to come. And you remember that day when the Messiah came. John was out in the wilderness baptizing. And here comes the Lord Jesus walking up to him. And John said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is who we've been waiting for. This is whom we've been looking for. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then notice in verse 26, he says, Men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham and among those who fear God, and those among you who fear God, to you the word of this salvation has been sent. That's what he's calling his message. The word of salvation. That's what preachers ought to be preaching. The word of salvation. This is the work that God had called Paul to do. To proclaim this word of salvation. Now this implies that they need salvation. Isn't that right? They need to be saved. Well, who needs to be saved? The very ones to whom he was speaking. As I said, they might think, well, they were religious, very religious. They were Jews and God-fearers. They were faithfully attending the Jewish synagogue. They weren't out worshiping the false gods and idols of the world. They were hearing the Word of God and read from the Law and the Prophets. But the Law and the Prophets couldn't save them. And that was their mistake. They thought by having the Word of God and hearing the Word of God that this was somehow making them right with God. I remember asking someone one time if they were a Christian and they patted their coat and they pulled out a Bible. Well, that doesn't prove you're a Christian. You know what that proves? You had a Bible in your pocket. <laughs> That's all that proves. It doesn't prove a thing. But they thought that way. They thought because they had Moses and the prophets and all of these things, they had the revelation from God, which the Gentiles did not have, that they were safe and secure. And Paul himself thought that. He thought that he had many advantages over the lost of this world. In Philippians, he speaks of those great advantages that he was uh, circumcised the eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin, of the seed of of Abraham and so forth. He had all of these things, and yet he was lost. Lost, lost, lost. A lot more lost than you could ever be. He was under the judgment of God. They were hearing the Word of God, but they weren't believing it. They didn't even understand it, as he goes on to say. They had the prophets, but they didn't understand what the prophets were even saying. The prophets pointed to the coming of Christ but they didn't understand it. They heard the law of Moses read, but they were blind to it. And this is what Paul writes later to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 3. He said, uh, when Moses is read, they have a, just as Moses had a veil over his face that so the children of Israel could not look at him, their minds were blinded. For until this day, that veil remains that veil over their minds, the minds, the eyes of their hearts, that veil, he says, is remains in the reading of the Old Testament. Because the veil, he says, is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil 
lies on their heart. They didn't understand it. They didn't get it. And so, they're under God's condemnation. Notice what he says beginning in verse uh, 27. For those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not know him, that is the Lord Jesus, nor even the voices of the prophets which are read every Sabbath, have fulfilled them in condemning him. And this deals with not only that someone has come, but is showing their response to the one who has come. Israel's response to the one who has come, he was the one promised. And now he's come, and it says in verse 27, they did not know him. He was there. He had all the proof you could ever ask for. Signs and wonders he did, right in their presence. He spoke the Word of God. He never contradicted the law of Moses or the the prophets. He clarified them, but He didn't contradict them. But to this day, the veil was lying over their hearts. They didn't recognize Him. John said, He came unto His own, and His own did not receive Him. They didn't understand the Scriptures that were read every week on the Sabbath every week. And it's very possible To sit in church week after week and never get it. To grow up in a church. To even memorize Scripture. And you don't get it. You don't get what it's really saying about you and your lost condition and your need of Christ. You don't get what it says when it speaks of the sufficiency of Christ's death to atone for your sins. You don't get what it means to be a believer. It just seems to go in one ear and out the other. And so many of us know that because we were raised in a church and we didn't understand it either until God saved us. God saved us and then we say, oh, now this book makes some sense. No, it makes a lot of sense. It makes more sense than I could have ever imagined. And that's when it becomes this great Word of God to us. The Bible. That's the book for me. It's not just for a child to sing in their Sunday school class. That's for the Christian to believe. This book is what matters. It is my life. It is my breath. It's everything to me. Because we get it now. But they didn't get it. Their minds were blinded. And yet, Paul goes on to say that their wicked response to the Messiah, to the One who is coming, their wicked response actually fulfilled the Scriptures and God's very plan of redemption. Notice in verses 27 and verse 29, for those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not know Him, nor even the voices of the prophets which are read every Sabbath, have fulfilled them, have fulfilled what the prophet said in condemning Him. When they condemned the Lord Jesus Christ, they were fulfilling the Scriptures. They weren't trying to. They just were. And notice he goes on to say, and though they found no cause for death in him, they asked Pilate that they should, that he should be put to death. Now, when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. So here are these unbelieving Jews. He came into his own, but they didn't receive him. And what they did to him in every way 
even to striking his face and plucking his beard and and beating his brow. They were fulfilling the prophets who prophesied of this of old. That he would not even be recognizable as a man because of what they would do to him. They put him to death. This is what Peter said on the day of Pentecost, isn't it? He said the very same thing. He said, him, that is Jesus, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. Now, wait a minute. You're saying on the one hand, this was God's sovereign plan. Determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. This is what God planned, his death. But you have taken him and put him to death. In chapter 4, Peter says there, he says, in this prayer to God, for truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. So we see throughout the passage, not just the uh, verses where God is the subject of the verb, but all throughout, we see that God was in charge. When things looked like they were getting so out of control, God was there. God was working. God was fulfilling His purpose and plan. And so notice what Paul goes on to say. Um, in verse 30, but God raised him from the dead. And he was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses to the people. God didn't leave him in the grave. God raised him up on the third day, just as he said he would do. And then he says uh, in verse 30, uh, 33, God has fulfilled, or, or, or verse 32, and we declare to you glad tidings. I mean, not saying we're declaring to you God's judgments on you for being part of this. We're proclaiming God's glad tidings. That promise which was made to the fathers, God has fulfilled this for us, for us, their children, in that He raised up Jesus And it is also written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And he raised him up from from the dead, no more to return to corruption. You see, David died and was buried. Jesus was raised from the dead, never to die again. Lazarus was raised from the dead, but he died again. Jesus died never to, uh, to die again, no more to return to corruption He has spoken thus, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep, was buried with his fathers, and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up saw no corruption. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And by Him, everyone who believes is justified from all the things 
from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. You see, he's telling this is this is where this salvation is found. This is the word of salvation. It's not by going out and trying to do the best you can or like they were doing, keeping the law of Moses. And they thought that was going to make them right with God. That's not just a Jewish problem. That's a problem we all have. We think that somehow we can live a good enough life that when we die, we'll go to heaven. Simple as that. They don't even concern themselves with it because they say, I'm better than this person or I'm better than that person. I've done enough good things in my life. I try to help people and be nice to people. Therefore, I deserve to go to heaven. Preacher, My preacher growing up used to say there are a lot of people out there strutting their way to hell thinking they're too good to be damned. Paul is laying out here for the Jews as well as the Gentiles. <clears throat> there is salvation and no other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. It's by putting your trust and your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This isn't an easy believism that you can just say a prayer and now you're going to heaven. This is putting your faith and your trust in Him. Your eternal destiny in His hands. You see what He has done for your soul. And because of that, you want to give your whole life to Him. That's what salvation is about. It's by putting your trust and your faith in Jesus Christ alone. That's what Paul was preaching here. He introduces a word here that's not used before this very often. Maybe only once. He speaks of justification. Justification in verse 13. By Him, everyone who believes is justified from all the things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Justified means to be declared righteous. That was a problem for the Jews because they were not really keeping the law of God that they believed and that they had and they read. It condemned them. And for the Gentiles who were without the law, they weren't even keeping the law that God had put in their hearts. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And He's letting them know that this great message, this wonderful message, this good news, this word of salvation is here for you. God sent us all the way to this place to tell you the word of salvation. And next time we'll look at their response. But a response is essential. A response is inevitable. To that message, you either say yes and believe and follow Christ or you reject Him. Your rejection may be, I didn't even really listen. Or your rejection may be, maybe another time, maybe later. That's still a rejection. The only right response is to embrace Him as your Lord and your Savior. If you're not, you're in the condition that He'll go on to talk about. He says, beware, <laughs> beware. Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish. Be careful. That's why He tells them at the beginning, listen. And after you've listened, you need to respond. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. What a message. What a gospel to preach. 
Paul was excited about preaching it. They wanted to take it as far as they could take it. Into dangerous places as well as friendly places. They wanted others to know there is a way of salvation. There is a way to be made right with God. And it's only through the One whom God had foretold of old and in time brought into this world. Jesus Christ. He is the salvation. It's not simply fixing up your life, turning over a new leaf. It's not simply making some resolutions or, or following some, some kind of principles in your religion. It's by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. Whether you're young or whether you're old, that's the message for you. And the gospel is simple. And that what you must do is believe, trust in, G in Jesus Christ and in Him alone. Let's pray.